Welcome to This Week Explained, your go-to podcast for independent geopolitical analysis. We're thrilled to have you join us as we delve into the major global events of the week. I'm Tiana, and joining me is my co-host, Kervin. Together, we aim to simplify the complexities of our ever-evolving world. So, Kervin, what is on your agenda this week? All right, we're obviously going to talk Russia-Ukraine, uh, but with that, so you, there were some reports out that Ukraine's counteroffensive may be halted or stalled because of weather in Eastern Europe soon. We'll get into that. Then the big news of the week, and that is the <laughs> Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, North Korea-Russia meeting. We'll talk about what happened at the meeting and the implications of that. I think the real star of that meeting was the armored train that carried him <laughs> into Russia that couldn't top 37 miles per hour. Oh, the real hero for me the... was the guy that wiped down the seat. Did you see that? The poison <laughs> guy is <laughs> wiping down the seat. Oh, They're okay. talking about paranoia. I mean, they have good reason to yeah, be of course. that stuff, but it's still funny to see that they recorded it. Right. Yeah, that was that was for me, that was hilarious. I know none of this geopolitical stuff should be hilarious, but sometimes we have to just sit back and and find comedy. (laughs) Bring some levity to the situation. Uh, So then after that, we'll talk about how Italy might be planning on leaving China's Belt and Road Initiative. Already? Yes, all already. And it is causing... I mean, we called it from the get-go. This is not a good idea. And right. you didn't listen to us for some reason. I mean, do countries listen. ever listen to us? They, they should start. Should. No, no. Oh, wait, why? No, they should. <laughs> okay. Uh, after that, um, we'll discuss how China has now put out a blueprint for their reunification of Taiwan to integrate Taiwan back into China. It's a bold move, Cotton. Bold move. We'll see how it works out for them. Wow, they're just <laughs> becoming so brazen, and they're they're not even trying to brush it off or say, "No, we're not going to do that right now." I mean, we want to eventually, but now they're just saying, "We're going to do this, and we're yeah. plotting it, and we've already changed the borders on our maps, and now we have a blueprint for how we're going to reintegrate Taiwan into our borders." You're welcome, I- Taiwan. And so now you could see why militaries in the U.S. and Australia and New Zealand are preparing to go to war with China because they're more brazen as yeah. the days go on. And um, and then we're going to finish this episode by talking about uh, a surprising interview. I would think hmm. I would say this week, and that is uh, Iran's president Ibrahim Raisi. He sat down with the great Lester Holt, host of NBC News and Dateline. And they had an interview. Wow. Dayline let him go. Well, obviously, Dayline hasn't released any new episodes in a while. So he has some free time on his hands. I think he has free time even with doing Dateline. The five seconds he has to stand in front of a brick wall. He is our esteemed host. Right. Do not (laughs) talk down on him. Well, we have a lot to get through. So let's get started. What is the latest in Ukraine? Yeah. So the main story this week is that major attack that Ukraine carried out on the Sevastopol military base. Um, Mm -hmm. So they reported, reportedly caused severe damage to a landing craft and a submarine Mm. and really inflicted significant naval losses on Russia. Uh, But more than that, it sidelined a major naval dry dock facility 
And that's yeah. complicating Russia's ability to operate on the Black Sea. Can you explain why dry docks are so important in modern warfare? Sure. Uh, dry docks are used for, and I'm sure you know this because we've been on cruises and, and things like that. And we're from South Louisiana <laughs> where everybody has a boat. <laughs> right. And most people work in the oil field, and that also requires boats. Right. And so, yeah, so you know, uh, just for basic maintenance of all those seafaring vessels, not just right. military, but civilian craft as well. So they, there are these facilities where ships can be floated in. For those that don't know, ships can be floated in and repaired after all the water is dumped out um, of the area. So now in, in modern warfare... They've always been high priority targets because they're they're stationary. Dry docks are stationary, uh -huh. and they're not easy to fix. So, uh, well, just for an example, the U.S. right now is spending billions of dollars just to refresh undamaged dry docks in the U.S. So, repairing battle damage is going to be far more costly for Russia. But I ninety five is going to be under construction <laughs> for the foreseeable future. But they're going to spend billions of dollars for undamaged dry docks. That's that makes sense. That makes we will, sense. We will never see the completion of I ninety five. See, my whole thing is I'm about to go off on a tangent, guys. Um, my whole thing is is I understand how lucky we are to live in this country. And, you know, it comes with a lot of freedoms, but also it comes with, you know, a price, which comes in the form of taxes. And I wouldn't mind paying taxes if they didn't spend it on stupid crap that's unneeded. Yeah, I agree unnecessary with Unnecessary and frivolous and just that that's the whole that's why I complain about all that <laughs> stuff so often. That goes back to my plan of an itemized list of where my taxes go and I choose. Yeah. Instead of what? putting, you know, burying it and all that legal jargon, just yeah. saying flat out, we're going to spend it on this. This much money is going to be earmarked for this. And, that, you know, all right, we we did it. We successfully changed the subject of this question. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so let's move off of policy. Let's, let's go move back off, to geopolitics. Yeah, we're not talking about U.S. policy, but let's go back to it. So yeah. what does this mean for Russia? We're talking about dry docks, not United States taxes yeah, right now. So the yeah, so so this is an dock. absolute military failure for Russia. Uh, and I say that because it looks as though their air defenses are either inadequate, broken, or as I like to say, two things can be true at the same time. Right. So I think they're both inadequate and broken. <laughs> um, so from a Russian perspective, they knew that the dry docks were likely targets because mm -hmm. Ukraine struck. Crimea and Sevastopol all over the place. That's been part of their counteroffensive. Right. Uh, and even knowing that, they continue to use them to maintain uh, what are key Black Sea naval units because they just simply had nowhere else to go. I was about to say, what was the alternative? To there is, yeah, there is none. And that's <laughs> that's a failure. Uh, it's the it's the old Rumsfeld comment. If you go to war with the military you have, not the one that you want. Right. And that should not happen. When you're invading a country, you should yeah. go, you should be going with the military knowing that you're going to be successful. Right. Are you are making sure you have all the equipment, the trained personnel, the you know, yeah. all that stuff should be all in line, but it looks like Putin didn't tell anyone and just 
just yeah didn't even tell his own his own military and they went um and they've so, been mad ever since oh yeah some of them have and uh some of them are not keeping their mouth shut and they're dying uh yeah. that's it, that's tragic for those guys and now, their families with, and their with, friends yeah, especially their families right uh, but without maintenance support russia's entire black sea fleet will and i'll say in a matter of months it's going to be rendered operationally ineffective and that means it's effectively sunk. That's by navy. The entire Black Sea Navy, and that's one of the critical points for the Russian military. Yeah, uh, they do have other dry docks available in Russian territory, but they're floating dry docks. They're far less capable of handling, you know, battle damage or even major refits of these naval vessels. What can we expect next? Well, with the Sevastopol now undeniably in the line of fire by Ukraine. We should anticipate uh, frantic Russian efforts to build a permanent dry dock structure. They're going to have to somewhere on that Black Sea coastline within Russia. Do you know how long that could potentially take? It's, I mean, like Even if you rush it, (laughs) it's not going to be done as quickly as they would like, right? <laughs> and then and then rushing it gives you the exact same problem because you Yeah, that's true cuz obviously you're cutting corners and just trying yeah. to get it done. Okay. Yeah. So you you think months? Yeah, it's it's going to take several months, maybe even a year. Uh, and that's, that's going to That's why this Ugh. was such a big moment for the Ukrainian military. Yeah, especially since everyone was saying that their counteroffensive was not going as well as they wanted it to. Yeah, and what we have not talked about now, because I try to refrain from doing the nuclear talk unless there's actual talk of it, is that there is no talk of a nuclear attack, a tactical nuclear attack on Ukraine because they have done this. This would be the moment to do it. Right. Uh Uh-oh. So that kind of shows you that they were bluffing. Could be. Possibly bluffing. You're right. Yeah possibly bluffing the fact that they didn't bring it up or they're not bringing it up because they're planning it. <laughs> there's, they want, yeah, they so there's that surprise. Because why would they be like, we're going to do this and then give everybody, because obviously you want to apply maximum pressure and have the most damage you possibly can Definitely. in this sort of situation. So I'm hoping they're not actually planning it and they were bluffing the whole time. Fingers but, crossed. Finger, fingers crossed. Um, well, we need to get into the latest from the Ukrainian counteroffensive. This week, a U.S. military official stated that the counteroffensive could get bogged down in the cold winter months coming soon to Eastern Europe, which that's what happened last year. They had to kind of put the kibosh on Yeah, and that was, that was on the Russian side, right? Russia yeah. had been advancing and advancing, and then those winter months came Stop. and we talked Stop. about it. Full stop. It was too muddy for them to do anything. Yep. And yeah. So what information do you have on this and how will this affect the war effort moving forward now that we're going into we're going to be in year two soon? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Yeah. Heading really quick to year two of these this quick special military operation. Quick and quick and easy. So uh, this was from. General Mark Milley, he's the top-ranking U.S. military officer, um, and he stated that Ukraine has little more than 30 days left of fighting before the weather hinders its counteroffensive. Wow, like it, it gets pretty cold pretty fast there, huh? Yeah, and it's because, so we're talking like mid to late October, and we're not talking about freezing. We're talking about 
uh, cold, you know, between, and we're, we're in the U.S., we'll use Fahrenheit here, between 40 and 30 degrees Fahrenheit. And when you bring right. precipitation into that, it becomes like this, yeah. like this sludge. So it's difficult to move. Now, once it freezes, it becomes easier. The, the problem you have is, is morale and getting the forces to actually do work when it's negative two degrees Fahrenheit. They don't want to do anything when conditions are favorable. Yeah. They don't yeah. want to do this. <laughs> so as the colder conditions set in, it's going to be much harder for Ukraine to maneuver. And they're the aggressor in the counteroffensive. So they have to maneuver. Now, despite this, Millie did mention that there's still heavy fighting going on. And Ukraine is progressing, although a very slow pace. He said it was a very mm -hmm. steady pace through the Russian okay. front lines. So does this mean that the counteroffensive has failed or? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, it's still too early. I know that when the counteroffensive was announced, uh, a lot of people thought, oh, well, Ukraine's going to do this counteroffensive. It's going to move really quickly and we're going to see a lot of, of gains. And that was the hope, right? Um, right. Quick gains. And that didn't happen. But that doesn't mean that the counteroffensive has failed. Millie believes. Can you, believes... Tell, can you oh, tell the um, U.S. News Corporation <laughs> yeah. that, though? Because I don't think they believe it. Because everything I've seen has been negative, at least in regards to the counteroffensive up until the dry docks being destroyed. Yeah. Uh, I can't sell. Because the... I've heard that, that they're like, this is the turning point. This is what Ukraine's been waiting for <laughs> is this turning point whenever the dry docks got, you know, destroyed. Yeah, I can't tell the U.S. media anything. They won't listen to me. I have very few in the U.S. journalists that but listen to me. the British meet the U.K. Oh, media yeah, likes they love me. A lot. The U.K. media likes you a lot. <laughs> uh, they do. Uh, and, you know, I, I do love talking to anybody in the media and, and giving my opinions on things uh, that are fact-based and logical. Thank you for clarifying. But uh, yeah, no, that, there's not a lot in the major New York Times, Washington Post that are looking at, at me. Although, right. yeah. Because you're not saying what you what they want you to say, probably. I do think that is a lot of the problem. Um, the, Look, the... we went off on another tangent, guys. <laughs> not I don't... a podcast with us. <laughs> I don't... Unless we go off on at least three <laughs> tangents. So we have one more tangent we're allowed to go on. Oh. Man, I, I was going to go off with the with our great weekend we had. That was going to be one of the I knew. Well, there you go. There's the third. I knew you were going to bring that up. I knew it. All right, let me write that down. Got to got to bring that up. Oh, Hopefully new new listeners to the podcast from this weekend. Oh yeah. Um Maybe. so so Millie has said that the the 30 days is still a reasonable amount of time left to continue that counteroffensive and to be successful in it. So the Ukrainians are not done just yet. So what about the progress of Ukraine's counteroffensive? Well, the, the goal of the counteroffensive was always to liberate the Russian-occupied territory in, in Ukraine. Crimea and stuff? Yep. Just yeah. Crimea so you too, got it right? exactly right. Okay. Crimea is the focus. Right. They've So it's no longer... Ukraine is like, well, you invaded us. That initial invasion was like, we're going to defend ourselves from the invasion and push back. And now they've mm -hmm. gotten to a moment where they go, okay... So we did all that. You still haven't stopped. You you took the land that you said you really wanted and you continue to fight. So now we're going to take the fight to you and we're going to start with Crimea. And that was what the counteroffensive was about. Um, so far, that goal has yet to be accomplished. 
And Ukraine has seen, honestly, very little gains on the ground. However, what they have in the dry docks. Yeah, so they've been very successful in carrying out attacks, just not successful moving the lines into yeah. those areas. So those are, right. um, you know, what what Wayne Phelps would say, the lieutenant colonel for the Marines, is that they are taking this war and making it a remote war where they attack remotely from from a distance. That's safer. A lot safer. For them. And, and it's being successful. Right. So uh, one Ukrainian general has claimed that they have breached Russia's first line of defenses in the south. So that is a positive. And what about the impact of weather on the fighting? So, I mean, obviously we know what the weather's going to do there. Yep. So just let us know. <laughs> yeah. So um, the, what we're talking about are those those cold months in the region. Like We hit on this a lot sooner than we were supposed to. Yeah. I mean, just go go more into detail here. Yeah, and, and so I'll put in, I guess I should talk about what other people are saying who know a lot more about Ukraine than I do, which is right. the head of Ukraine's Most... military intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> That's smart that you're deferring to him. But... Yeah, I will. Uh, so he acknowledged that it's a, hard, it's, it's a lot harder to fight in the cold, and it's a lot harder to fight in cold, wet weather. He did say... Duh. It was a question of adjustment. So they don't seem they don't seem to be calling for a halt. They said, we know this is going to happen. This is smart. It's just really good military tactics. We know what's coming. This is our land. It's our yeah. weather. We deal with it all the time. So we're going to make an adjustment. And that's what he said that they're going to do. But wheeled vehicles become a lot more problematic in that wet weather than the tracked vehicles like the tanks. Now remember, they've gotten some some new tanks over the last few months, the Abrams, the Leopards. So you're gonna probably see them focus more on tracked vehicles. Now starting in late October, not only is the weather gonna trend colder, but it's it's not gonna reach that what we talked about before, the point of complete freeze. All right. Until like the beginning of the end of the year, beginning of the year. Yeah, probably end of December, early January, just like you said. Probably into February. Yeah. And it'll be completely frozen over, a lot easier to maneuver than in the sludge. Um, mm-hmm. So during that time frame where it's not going to be a complete freeze, any participation will lead to the mud and sludge that I'm talking about. It's going to just for sure hinder movements of military equipment, like needed military equipment, as well as large formations of troops. So people trying to walk and maneuver around. It's going to be very right. difficult. I do want to note that Russia's use of extensive anti-tank defenses and those kamikaze drones will be just as challenging as the cold weather, so the adjustment needs to be twofold. Okay, well, <clears throat> let's get into week three of talking about the increased relations between North Korea and Russia. This week, Kim Jong-un hopped on his bulletproof train that could not go over 37 miles per hour <laughs> from North Korea to Moscow. Can you believe that? <laughs> that sounds like hell to me. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're the leader of a country and you have... Uh, um, I mean, obviously... Well, I know. I know all that. But just, like, only going 37 miles yeah. per hour, I'd be like, can we get there already? Could you Anyways, imagine being in a car with me? Driving 37 miles per hour the whole way to a location. 
I would direct you to a hospital because obviously you're having a stroke <laughs> if you are only going 37 miles per hour. <laughs> this is very true. But, yeah, that doesn't make sense. So anyways, Kim Jong-un, he hopped on his train, mm -hmm. made his way to Russia to meet Vladimir Putin, obviously. Who else would he be there to see? There was a lot of speculation that an arms deal would be agreed to, even if it was just in private. This happened, right? And can you kind of break down and analyze the meeting and what it means on a global level? Because I had actually seen today an article. I don't know if it's true or not, obviously. I saw an article that said Putin's actually concerned that this um, deal with North Korea is actually going to make him more of a pariah. And it's freaking him out right now. But obviously, he's desperate. Desperate times call for desperate measures, such as... Yeah, it's, so it's a it's, so it's a twofold thing, right? He's very desperate, but he also yeah. understands. I mean, he's you the gotta leader. Have people like you. you yeah, yeah, and you have somebody like you. The leader of a major geopolitical player, Russia. Say what you will about Russia, they are a, a major global power. Right. He he understands that North Korea is not a major global power, and now he is having to have this meeting with uh, with Kim Jong Un out of desperation and so it doesn't look good for him and he knows that yeah the optics are really it's like okay obviously things are not going as well as he's telling everybody yeah and and so this is this makes it a significant moment in geopolitics this meeting both leaders have an interest in demonstrating that despite their geopolitical isolation they have partners that they can call on that's why this is so public russia wants people to know hey you can try to isolate us, but we do have other partners. And Kim Jong-un is saying the same thing. We have partners in other countries. Sanction do us. Yeah. Prove it. <laughs> Prove it. Prove it. Uh, but they do. You know, they have Russia right now. They have China. And uh, no matter what we in the West feel about those countries, uh -huh. they, they are still good economies that can help out North Korea. Right. Um, and they... So... They both have a common goal, and that is they want to weaken the U.S.-led sanctions against Russia and North Korea. But particularly, Putin wants to weaken those sanctions over the war in Ukraine that were put on to Russia. And he's honestly, I would say, from my opinion, he's doing a really good job of it because they are still their military is still doing well. They're still putting money towards defense. They've put a hundred more new tanks into service than they did last year. So that's why we say sanctions don't work, guys. But, I mean, obviously they do to some degree if Russia is trying to get them lifted. You know what I mean? Like something's not going the way. Right, but they... And they... Also, I don't understand how a deal with North Korea, North Korea would convince America to lift sanctions. How the, how the heck? Well, it doesn't... Yeah, it doesn't get the u.s to or weaken the sanctions not necessarily lift them but weaken the sanctions i don't see how that well that's to correlate because what he is seeing is we're going to utilize the economies of these other countries so that it kind of counterbalances maybe i shouldn't have said weaken counterbalance oh, I, oh, the I sanctions. See, i see what you mean okay so if they have help from other countries obviously it would soften the sanctions like the purpose of the sanctions right that u.s place on them okay so was there an arms deal though well both 
both Russia and North Korea have denied claims that they plan to provide each other with weapons, but the leaders did promise to deepen defense cooperation. And Putin said Russia would help North Korea build satellites. Because they need, <laughs> we know how they need help with that. <laughs> so very, very publicly, and we've <laughs> talked about it, yeah, very publicly, we know their mm-hmm. satellites are not doing, they're not getting up there. They aren't. They are either exploding or crashing, or and they always make a big show of it, and it's always embarrassing. So them. who do you who do you go to? Someone Russia. who's a part of the space race, somebody who's uh, solidified themselves as oh, that's true. creators oh, of satellites. Think, oh crap! So I didn't even think about that. I would say the the caveat you made uh-huh. that it would most likely be done in private is an astute observation. Don't want to publicize that you're doing it mm-hmm. um, because that's going to hurt. Are you talking about last week? Because I didn't make that caveat today. No, Yeah, you did. You said that it's going to be in private. I, I don't remember. Okay, yeah. whatever. <laughs> this this all gets it's lost in the shuffle. I don't I'm even remember half the stuff. I'm blaming my can of water. Sorry. My <laughs> little pregame action going on and we have forgotten everything. So where where was I? Oh, the what ca- are we talking about? <laughs> the caveat you made about private, uh, the, the arms deal in private. So I'm sorry, you- just to let you know, we've already gone on multiple tangents past the allotted three, so therefore... Oh, so I still get my tangent. Okay. No! <laughs> All right. Well... Get back on track. What I was, what I was trying to, to get at is that um, even though things like this may be done in private, you can still read between the lines when the two leaders are talking, like the public statements that they make. Right. Uh, what's going on in private, you can, you can kind of tell... By yeah. what they're saying publicly, if you're read between the lines. It's so, the food... sexual tension between those two. Yes. The way they longingly look at each other. <laughs> That's really why the chair was being cleaned. Oh. Um, oh. If, uh, But what I wanted to say is that <laughs> we're talking about reading between the lines. If Putin is openly discussing helping North Korea with their military developments, mm-hmm. you can be assured that Kim Jong-un is going to have to help Russia in some capacity. But I had read that a lot of the weapons that they're offering um, Russia are like re, like they're like Soviet era weapons that they had like refashioned into what they consider something new. But it's not. Yeah, it's obviously. So it's not. It's not um, improved munitions. It's right. just increased munitions. So if you see it okay. as as opposed to. Uh, like the Shahid drones that we believe Iran is providing to Russia, that's new modern equipment given okay. to Russia. These would just be, oh, because because these munitions are Soviet era, you're exactly right in what you said. And because these munitions are Soviet era, they, they fit. No, kind of work them pretty much. And yeah, and they fit into the where they're going to projectile right. them out. Okay, so. gotcha. So what does this mean for the U.S.-led international order? I mean, this this meeting is a direct challenge to the U.S.-led international order. Putin is, is trying to avoid this over-reliance on China as well. So he's uh, he's trying to kind of walk backwards, too. Yep. And, and, you know, we talked about it. We warned Russia last week not to be over-reliant. And, it, hey, Putin, are you listening? I think he might be. I because mean, we do have listeners in Russia. 
we we do have a couple. If it's you, Putin, stop what you're doing. Just you, you're too aggressive. Like we just move leap. back. Too aggressive. We just leap to the possibility that it's the president of the yeah. country. Yeah. Uh, and then stop over reliance on China. Those are our two things yeah. for you. Right. This will be this will be on the private podcast just for you to listen. I mail it out to him. Oh my god! Shut up. Uh, <laughs> what I was going to say was that the Putin not only wants to increase pressure on his rivals in Europe and the U.S., but also in the Indo-Pacific. Well, what about the impact on Ukraine? I mean, just the fact that this meeting took place allows Russia to send a strong message. To, I know you asked about Ukraine, but it's a strong message to South Korea not to directly provide military, lethal military aid to Ukraine. Oh, I just love all this hypocrisy. Right. And and NATO has been pressuring South Korea. But up to this point, South Korea has only given Ukraine non-lethal aid. Gotta look out for you for yourself, you know, in this situation. Yeah. And so the main question, I guess, is what does the future hold for these alliances? Because they seem shaky at best. They they are. So if, if Russia, North Korea, and China feel that they are threatened, it's going to make sense that they're going to seek to support each other through partnerships or even alliances to counter the United States. That's the big bad wolf, the United uh-huh. States. Uh, uh-huh. But each, each, his, each country has a limited history of making these relationships work. You, you got right. it. You we got can it. We see it right now. <laughs> we can see it happening right now. <laughs> yeah. And, and we all know that these leaders are just going to look out for number one. Number one being themselves. Of course. So this is what I would call like a tightrope to walk. When when any of these countries talk about working together, it's a tightrope because one's going to want power over the other. Right. I mean, initially they, you know, act like they're a united front and it all seems hunky-dory. But eventually somebody tries to distance themselves or yep. make a partnership with a wild card. But we haven't called hey. it a wild card this episode, so I figured the, I'd throw that in there. The Charlie Day of geopolitics. Well, I mean, this is a nice spot to bring up China's Belt and Road Initiative since you talked about warning of over-reliance on China. Mm-hmm. Italy seems to be feeling the effects of that reliance on China's financial support right now. Um, now they might be leaving the Belt and Road Initiative, and it hasn't been that long. So can you explain the decision there and its geopolitical implications? I mean, I'm I'm just going to say it. We told you so in a way. Right. <laughs> and um, let's start with what we learned this week. So this came out of Italy, and they were reportedly planning to withdraw from China's global trade and infrastructure enterprise, the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, the main takeaway is that this move could set a precedence for a constructive exit from the initiative. So it would potentially pave the way for other countries to exit. Right. Realizing that China's putting the squeeze on them and not trying to be as helpful or altruistic as they tried to portray themselves. Right. And as we talked about in, like, I think, one of the first episodes of this podcast, we talked about the Belt and Road Initiative and how it is putting emerging countries into debt to China. That's the point. That's, That's the, the point. point. Yeah, they want them to be beholden to them. You owe me. So maybe this money. <laughs> right. Exactly. And that's what what you said. That's what China wants. Um, now we talked about emerging countries being indebted to China, but Italy is currently 
one of the group of seven industrialized countries. They're not an emerging economy. They're there. That's why it confused me that they hop in that. Yeah, and they're the only one of the group of seven. Huh. So as, you know, as right now, as Italy is assuming this rotating presidency of the group of seven developed economies in 2024, so they're going to assume the presidency at that year, they are coming under pressure to recast their relationship with Beijing so that they align more with their Western allies. Can you explain more of what Group of Seven is, or do you not have all that at the top of your head right now? I don't have it all at the top of my head, but the Group of Seven industrialized countries, those are your main, the U.S., Italy, um, the U.K. I've never heard of them being referred to that way. Yeah, so, I mean, and and with geopolitics, there's just so many names for everything. Like, they, all, they all get new names. Everybody's got their little nickname. Yeah, you got NATO, BRICS, the UN. Uh, oh, it's all of, so now you have the group of seven. You've got the Global South, which we we made a post about. Um, okay. You have the the West, in quotes, the West. Okay. Okay, but, I didn't know. Yeah, all right. Yeah, so it's it's mainly a group of seven countries that have stable economies, as, as much as you can say that they're stable. Um, and it's a lot of your big one, your big known entities. Okay. Okay, well, what about Italy's decision? Have they already made up their mind or are they just kind of floating it out there to see how people respond to it? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, well, Italy's prime minister stated that Rome is still considering whether to leave the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, the current Italian government does not consider its membership to have sufficiently benefited its economy. And they are certainly right about that. They yeah. get that Correct, and it's no, it's no like, oh, shame on, shame on them. You should have seen that coming because China right. offered them all of this stuff, billions of dollars, and all of this in, in you know, infrastructure and things, and they didn't fulfill their end of the bargain. Now we knew that was going to happen, yeah, but not, you know, these are leaders of countries looking to help their people out. And if it sounds too good to be true, I had to throw in some sort of corny line, but if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Correct. Now, you are, you're exactly right. You said it was corny. As corny as that is, it's, it's pretty much true. It applies. It applies. <laughs> um, Italy has until December to formally withdraw or that membership is going to roll over for another five years. So how has China responded to Italy's decision? Well, they responded by emphasizing the the importance of their bilateral ties, so the two countries' ties together. Right. Um, so the a spokesman at the Chinese Foreign Ministry stated that further cooperation under the Belt and Road Initiative is in the interest of both countries. Um, he also expressed the belief that China and Italy should further deepen practical cooperation, and those are in, in various fields, mainly economic fields. Um, but also to promote greater development of their comprehensive strategic partnership. Now, Beijing did warn that quitting the Belt and Road Initiative would damage Italy's credibility and reputation. Really? Oh my Probably. gosh, talk about gaslighting. Yeah. Probably only <laughs> it's it only it hurt China more than Italy. It well, it hurts <laughs> Italy's reputation in China. Oh, no, not that. Welcome right. to being on their crap list, China. We've been there for a while. Right. Um, now, despite 
those warnings. Uh, it does appear that China has not publicly pushed Italy to stay in the Belt and Road Initiative. They just want to focus on, you know, those bilateral ties. China definitely does want to use Italy to continue to fracture relationships in the West. That's mm -hmm. what they want Italy to do. Uh, and it's a smart move because Italy's economy is not great. It hasn't been for quite a while. Right. Um, and there's a history of Italy pushing back against the West. We know. Let's talk about World War II now. Just kidding. Yeah. Let's talk about World War One. Let's talk about all the wars. All right, let's shift our focus to the East now. China recently unveiled a plan to deepen integration between the coastal province of Fujian and Taiwan, while also flexing its military might around the island. Can you break down this development for us? Absolutely. So the Chinese Communist Party's Central Committee and the State Council have issued a directive to make Fujian a demonstration zone. Uh, for, for integrated development with Taiwan. So demonstration zone is a term for like agriculture. Okay. So they're building up like agricultural business on in that area. Okay. Um, and they want it to be what's what they call, quote, the first home for Taiwanese residents and businesses looking to settle in China. And that's why this move is seen as a blueprint for Taiwan's future development in reunifying with China. Yeah, I was about to say, and that's all operating under the assumption that they are successful in reintegrating Taiwan into their borders, right? Well, this would come first. Okay, so this... This is a disputed area Okay. that they would make... Well, I say they would make it as China. They already view it as China. Who's they? The China the views CCP. it as China? Yeah, the CCP. Okay, okay. So, so Xi, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, says this is China. And hey, those all of those people looking to do business as a Chinese business who live in Taiwan would come here to establish a business and bring their families over. And now they are Chinese. And then that then moves into... So they're asking people to move off the island of Taiwan to Fujian? Yep. Businesses like major, uh, major people with with tons of money, tons of disposable income. Do they have tons of people who want to do that, though? That's well, the thing. Like, who's we, that's that's what we're going to find out in the future. OK. And all of this comes at a time when cross strait relations. So it's in that strait of Taiwan. Um, mm -hmm. the, those cross strait relations are delicate. Taiwan's gearing up for its presidential election in January and then. China, while they're doing that, while Taiwan is doing that, they're continuing to ramp up military pressure by sending warships around the island of Taiwan. And how has this been received in Taiwan? Well, the response in Taiwan has been mixed. Uh, the Thai One Taiwanese lawmaker, Wang Tingyu, from the Democratic Progressive Party, that's the party that has power right now, mm -hmm. he called the integration plan, quote, ridiculous. Okay. And he suggested that China should focus on its own issues rather than working against Taiwan. He's not wrong. Right. You He's know, not. China's got a lot going on right now. So what does this mean for businesses and residents in Taiwan? So we're, we're looking at this from a, uh, a CCP perspective, a Chinese so, perspective. Hold on. One more thing. So they're not like 
forcibly relocating Taiwanese businesses. These are people who are willingly trying to reintegrate themselves with China. This is why you are co-host of This Week Explain. That is an incredible observation in question because right now, no, that's not what it looks like. But that doesn't mean... It's not coming in the future. When it's failed. Yeah, exactly. That it is forced. So... Great job on that one. Oh, my um, gosh. <laughs> um, but looking at it, that's why I wanted to take it from the CCP, the the Chinese perspective, because, yes, what you said is probably what will happen. Eventually, whenever uh, they don't have as many people clamoring to go, <laughs> to, right. go to that disputed territory. <laughs> because this is all a facade, right? Right. Um, they're acting like Taiwan's just begging to come back right now. Yeah. Uh, that's okay. what they're trying to to put out. That's the front that they're putting up. Of and, course. And so for them, the directive seeks to improve the environment for Taiwanese firms to do business in Fujian. Okay. Um, they want to deepen industrial and capital cooperation. They're trying to encourage Taiwanese companies to list on the Chinese stock exchanges. Because they need more money. Exactly. Because Italy might be leaving the Belt right. Road Initiative. <laughs> And we talked about how China's economy was tanking like a lot of other major economies. Yeah. So they need this money. Now, the the directive also aims to attract Taiwanese workers and families to settle in Fujian. And they're doing this because they're they're trying to promote social welfare programs in the area. And they are promising equal treatment for Taiwan students, even if they see themselves as Taiwanese and not Chinese. They say, we're going to give you equal treatment to enroll in public schools. Oh, gee, thanks. Outward facing, this is what they're trying to say. Okay. Um, and that, they're hoping, could sway public opinion on China's more aggressive actions. That would give Xi the ability to continue his plan for reunification. And what are the broader geopolitical implications of this move? So this is seen as part of what's called the carrot and stick approach that China has on Taiwan, meaning Mm -hmm. they're offering businesses and they're offering opportunities for businesses and cultural exchanges. Uh, They hope, China hopes to make its point of view more agreeable to those in Taiwan. Right. So they're kind of like moving the goalposts for them. Right. So you, you know, the, yeah, like carrot and stick, right? Yeah. Where, oh, I'm hungry, so I didn't want to bring up carrots (laughs) right now. (laughs) Well, I, I don't know what the other one would be, but yes. So, so you see, said moving the goalposts, moving the goalpost. Here's right. what we're going to give you, and then wait, you didn't give us that, and you go, well, no, we're going to give you this, and just keep yeah. moving that along until everyone is forced to agree Requiring with. Requiring more and more loyalty, and you know, yeah. Um, so that's what they want. That China wants. The Taiwanese people to be more agreeable to what they're doing, but it they at the same time they continue to threaten Taiwan with the prospect of military invasion. So that's not good. Given the extent to which cross-strait ties have frayed in recent years, it remains to me unclear how receptive those in Taiwan are going to be to this sweeping proposal by China. Well, if there's anything that I've learned it's probably that they aren't as open to it 
especially if you go by what Taiwanese lawmaker Wang Ting Yu said. Yes. So, I mean, there you go. There you have it. That's, my, that's where I think they're leaning. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to go back to what you said about Taiwan gearing up for a presidential election. Like we all are, I guess. How does this latest move by China affect that election? 2024 is going to be quite a year. Everyone seems to be having elections, right? Right. Now, China's plan to deepen integration with Taiwan is going to be the main talk of Taiwan's election, but also I would say every every presidential election that's happening from now until the end of 2024. It has significant implications. The Chinese Communist Party's approach, which combines economic opportunities with military threats, is seen as a from China to Taiwan, it's seen as a choice between peaceful, quote, reunification or military aggression. Basically saying, Taiwan, you choose what you want. This strategy could influence public opinion, could be positive towards China or negative. We don't know right now. Um, and the political landscape in Taiwan is is going to be just crazy ahead of mm-hmm. these elections. We can relate to that. Yeah. So as of right now, but obviously no one's trying to force us to reunify with a country. Not yet. <laughs> UK, I'm looking at you. No. <laughs> well, honestly, you could look at all the countries. True. So not all the countries, but all the Western European nations that tried to colonize this area. You know what I you know. Yeah, so I anyway. got you. As of right now, do the people of Taiwan, are are they feeling positive about the possible reunification? Or are they kind of like, no, we don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, support for reunification in Taiwan remains very low. And a- approval of Taiwanese sovereignty and actually just the identity of being Taiwanese right. is on the rise. So it's not just high it continues to rise. Uh-uh. Beijing's domestic actions, like curbing democracy in Hong Kong, uh, clamping down on private and foreign businesses, that does not go unnoticed. Right. And I say that it hinders China's credibility, that they are going to preserve the autonomies outlined in its reunification plan. Right. So, <sighs> I hate to do this, but we need to move on to the Middle East. We've been running yeah, our mouths for a it's while. It's getting late. So let's move on to the Middle East. Um, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi recently stated that his government will decide how to spend $6 billion in previously frozen funds due to be released in a prisoner exchange agreement with the U.S. Because in case you're wondering, now we negotiate with people. Can you shed some light on this situation and its potential implications? Yeah, certainly. Um, We'll start with the prisoner exchange agreement. Uh, That's between Iran and the U.S. It involves the release of five American citizens held in Iran in return for five Iranians detained in the U.S. Now, it should should stop there, right? Yeah, it should. What the heck? It did not. Of course Um, not. So as part of this deal, Tehran will be granted access to roughly $6 billion in Iranian oil revenues that were blocked in South Korean banks due to sanctions that the U.S. put on Iran. 
this is blowing my mind. <laughs> right. So you're thinking, we're giving $6 billion to Iran that they have unfettered access to. Now, U.S. Right. officials have stated that Qatar's central bank will oversee these funds and Iran will be permitted to use the money only for humanitarian purposes in accordance with U.S. sanctions. The U.S. Treasury Department says that they're going to closely monitor all transactions to ensure compliance. I hope they are telling the truth on that because that actually sounds nice. So how has Iran responded to these conditions? I mean, you can't respond negatively. You're getting $6 billion on top of five prisoners and we're just getting our so wait, prisoners. Well, wait till you hear what President Raisi said. Oh, okay. He said that Iran will have authority over how the funds will be spent, stating that the money belongs to the Iranian people and government, meaning it just belongs to the Iranian government to do right. as they will. Right. He suggested that humanitarian, the term humanitarian, means whatever the Iranian people need. So we all know Ibrahim Raisi is only there for the people of Iran and not oh. for his own. That was sarcasm. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> I picked up on that. So he said that this money will be budgeted for those needs that he thinks it should be. So he thinks he has authority over the Qatar banks and over the United States government who is going to be overseeing the spending. Like, how does he think he's going to circumvent all that stuff? That's what I don't, I guess, if there's a will, there's a way. Right. So what are the potential geopolitical implications of this stupid situation we shouldn't be in? Well... And, and this is going to get into even if those funds can only be used for humanitarian reasons. Yeah, who gets to decide what that well, Some analysts argue that giving right. Iran access to these blocked funds means that the U.S. is allowing Tehran to free up other money that it has access to for anything. Uh -huh. Which it could use to buy weapons or send to proxy forces in the Middle East. So it could potentially escalate tensions in the Middle East and within Iran. Cool. It's only $6 billion. It's fine. Right. Uh, who doesn't have that just laying around? Oh, I do. Right. I keep it in a shoebox. Yeah. Don't tell people where it's at. Uh, we do know that Iran has been secretly providing Russia with drones in its invasion of Ukraine. So the reallocation of these funds could go to further bolster Russia's military through like private arms deals with Iran. That also doesn't make sense to me. Why would they agree to releasing these funds whenever it's obvious they are funding Russia and, you know, giving Russia the drones that they need? That is a that is I we do not understand. have enough time to go into that for sure. Because our president has dementia and he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> 90% of our... And neither uh, does Mitch McConnell, oof. and neither does freaking, what's her name? Diane Feinstein. I'm just naming all the people who should be out of office. And by the way, thank you, Mitt Romney, for saying you're not going to run this coming year because you will be in your mid-80s by the time the term ends. Thank you for recognizing that we shouldn't have our great-grandparents running the government. Yep, and you can be against somebody politically and say, well, at least they made a good decision right. in doing that. And and I hope right. more people follow suit and we get some some fresh blood we into fresh blood. our U.S. Oh. political system. 
Also, people who are going to be voting, look at me going off on our sixth tangent. Um, also, people who are voting, you don't have to vote for the legacy. You do not have to vote for them just because you recognize the name or they've been there since 1968. You don't have to vote for them. You can vote if, for new people. If they've been there since 1968, that it's is grounds to not vote for that person. Right. Okay. So, anyways, back on topic. Sorry, guys. We can never seem to keep a straight. We can't, <laughs> we can't keep the conversation just on one topic. No. Okay. So... Has Iran said anything about the accusations that they are supporting Russia in its war on Ukraine? I mean, I mean, I know they're accused, but also we know that Russia has the drones that Iran developed. So, I yeah, don't know but why we're like allegedly? Well, uh, President Ibrahim Raisi told Lester Holt that they are not supporting Russia. They are not giving these drones. And so, where did they come from? He said that. Uh, well, he doesn't know, but he said that oh, Kiev, right. that you, the Ukraine, Kiev, has yet to provide Tehran with evidence and documents proving that the allegations are true. So what evidence does Ukraine and the U.S. have that support these accusations? Well, that's where that's where it comes in, because the, the accusations, the um, documents and evidence, a lot of it is, is classified. Right. As to not have that information out. But Understandable. Some analysts from the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency that's in the U.S., one of the three-letter agencies. One they of stupid three-letter agencies. <laughs> yeah. We have so many of those. They have, um, they've displayed remnants of Iranian drones they said were found in Ukraine, huh? as well as largely intact drones recovered from what we know as an Iranian air attack in Iraq's Kurdish region. Uh, now, oh, okay. The two drones recovered in Ukraine and Iraq look identical. So that the the scene from it, my cousin Vinny, identical. Identical. And now I want to watch that movie. Oh, I love that movie. Um, <laughs> we just watched it. I, I could watch it every day. It's, I know, babe. It's a spectacular movie. Now, what it's what it showed was they have the same triangular design, wingspan, fiberglass fuselage, and. Or say fuselage, and rudimentary. You can say it however you want. This <laughs> I'm is an your American. podcast. <laughs> it's your podcast, buddy. And this rudimentary propeller motor towards the rear of the drone. And how has Iran responded to this evidence? Raisi continues to declare that Iran has no role in the Russia-Ukraine war. He emphasized that Tehran needs to see the actual evidence and documents from Kiev. That proves the allegations before he's going to talk further on the topic. Is he saying he wants Kiev to ship the remnants? <laughs> yeah, that's a them? great point. So they can look at it and be like, I don't know what you're talking. They didn't send us anything. You know what I mean? If they send it back. And you they go, deny- hey, we got our drones back. That's cool. We can fix this one. That's great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I will say is just a remanufacturing of a drone that they picked up. It's a Scan Eagle. Mm-hmm. It's a U.S. UAV. So they put their own spin on it. Yeah, and okay. so that's that's all the that's all. That's it is. why it's kind of obvious that it's from them. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's clear that the geopolitical landscape is constantly shifting, and it's crucial to stay informed and understand the implications of these changes. So, thank you, Kervin. Is oh, I know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to get started. 
We've reached the end. Now I can be as We've goofy as I want. Now he can say what he wants. If you're still here, actually, if you're still listening, you are the true heroes. Yes. As we always say, you are the heroes. Yes. Um, thank you for giving us a shot. And now you are truly informed on the now geopolitical. we're going to talk about our weekend. Oh, it was awesome. I do want to say to Matt, all the guys in, in Emory. Uh, what, you better quit just freaking laser focusing on Matt, dude. Because yeah. they all welcomed our kids with open arms. And, and, and I had no idea. And you said that Charlotte told you this. That mm-hmm. she just kept saying how nice everyone was. And I yeah. didn't yeah. even see interactions with Charlotte with people. Yeah. So she was just hanging out with with all of these bands and they were just super nice. Well, I think you might need to, I don't know, tell people what the heck you're talking about. Oh yeah, we went to uh, Tennessee is for Lovers. It's a festival as an elder emo that I am. Some of my favorite bands were playing, but uh, friends of the podcast and, and maybe that's just lessening it and I shouldn't do that, but actual friends of ours. Hey guys. Is yeah, Since and Matt. We know they're listening. Devin, <laughs> Toby, Josh, Dave, everybody. If you're listening, yeah. just thank you. I mean, it was incredible. You'll you'll never know the impact you had on our kids' lives just for letting them hang out. Yeah, seeing it was all a these lot of fun, wonderful bands play. It was a lot of fun. We had a great time. Well, you would be remiss to not mention Katie, the queen of the day. The hardest working person in the industry. Right. I mean, she went above and beyond for, really for all of us. And it was great. You enjoyed it. I did. I I let you be free and run around <laughs> and do what you wanted to do. And I just kind of stuck. Like if one of the kids got overwhelmed, I'd go with them. Or if one of them wanted to see one of the bands, I would go with them. And I'd just let you go do what you're going to do. Like it was... A very intimate festival, so I didn't feel concerned about us kind of going and doing our own things, yeah. you know? Or the kids getting lost. Or the kids getting... I mean, I wasn't worried about that yeah. at They're all. their own. So, yeah, it was it was a fantastic weekend. I love Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm already so planning beautiful. the move. Yeah. <laughs> it was so beautiful. So, But anyway. Yeah, after that, I guess we got to get off here. We're past an hour. and And I also have to finish dinner... Yes, I always mentioned dinner at the. Like, we always because we was recording just before dinner, which maybe we probably should not do. Why? <laughs> we're I'm always hungry her- as we're. T- yeah, that's true. Good thing I have this. So, we got some calories I in get that some water. Calories in that water. <laughs> um, is there anything else you wanted to add after all of that? Nope. Just want to thank our listeners for. Listening to this podcast, we hope that you found it both informative and engaging. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakwood Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there.